Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn with me. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning as we continue our our sermon series on the storyline of the Bible. And so we're going to be in Ephesians. We're going to start in Ephesians, the second chapter, and we're going to move all the way over into the third chapter. It's a little bit of a lengthy text reading, and I don't have time to unpack it all, but we're going to hit the highlights of it. How are y'all doing? You doing good? Looking around? I mean, it's not like anything crazy's happened this week, right? Pretty normal week for everybody, right? Right? I mean, it's, we're just used to it. We're just rolling with the punches in 2020, right? All right. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 11, and we will read all the way over to 313. Praise the Lord. Paul writes and says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcisions, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of, G- of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written it briefly. When you read this, you may perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles our fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he has given me by the working of his power to me. 
though I am the least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that although the church, that, uh, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, this morning, Lord, as we reflect on our lives, as we reflect on our world, we reflect on our nation, we reflect on our church, we reflect on our families, and we think about those, time, those things, Lord, I, I believe we all would say we stand in a place of need. We're in a place of need. We need you to speak into those areas and into those spheres. We need you to give us hope. We need you to give us assurance we need this morning a fresh look. We need this morning to stand in awe of Jesus and his glorious gospel. All that you are, Christ, and all that you have done, would you just, by the, by the preaching of your word, by even by the reading of your word and the power of the Spirit, would you just deliver that into our hearts? May you just stir up the the sweet gift of the Holy Spirit into our hearts that may we, by our humility, may we, by our attentiveness, may we, may we stir up the Spirit within us. May that Spirit produce sweet fruit, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control for your glory. We pray that. We would be your people, a holy people set apart and called, that we would be your church, unified, loving, and proclaiming the gospel. We pray that unto those ends, Lord, use me, Father. I feel weak this morning, but use me. May we stand in awe of you. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we are in the storyline of the Bible series, and what we've noticed throughout the storyline of the a series, and it's been very evident, I would say, in the in the Old Testament, is we've noticed that God, by His by His sovereign grace and goodness and His plan, that God has used uh, men and women, and we'll focus in on on the men, not to say and to neglect the women, because certainly He's used women throughout the storyline. But let's just think about the men that God has chosen, that God has used throughout the storyline. We start off in Genesis with a man named uh, Adam, and I'm, certainly I can't hit them all, but we start off with Adam, and then we got Noah, and then you have Abraham, Isaac, you've got Jacob, you've got Moses, you've got David, you've got a whole list of prophets and kings that he uses. Crossover into the New Testament, you've got John the Baptist, right? You, you've got Jesus, the God-man who he is. You've got Peter, and now we arrive to, to Paul. And we'll, as we think about these men we can notice that every one of them except Jesus are imperfect men. They are what the Apostle Paul will say to the church in Corinth, that God's glory is being made, made manifest in, in jars of clay, that a jar of clay is something uh, that is very fragile and something that's very ordinary, something that's very of this earth. I mean, it's clay, it's made of this earth, and yet 
what Paul is saying is the glory is not what's on the outside. The outside is very ordinary. The glory is something that is on the inside to what God is revealing and God is doing. And we could say that about every one of those men that we've listed. And the man that we wanna focus in on, the man that God is using Maybe, I would say, maybe the most in the scriptures. Now, that could be debatable and that's okay, but at least as we understand the, the makeup of the Bible, I mean, he writes 13 books of the Bible. The man that God is using that we really wanna think about today is the man by the name of Paul or Saul of Tarsus. The apostle Paul, he is born Saul of Tarsus. He is a Hebrew. He is a Jew. That means he's a Jew. He's theologically trained. He, is, uh, he ascends to the top, uh, probably because he is so stinking smart, as well as he's so zealous. And in fact, Paul says this about himself in Philippians 3, 5, and 6. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he says, I was blameless. And so what we see there is his kind of credentials that he's giving to us, that he's saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like I'm at the very top, I'm a leader. And then as we come to understand as what is uh, described for us as the events, as Luke gives them to us in the book of Acts, what we see is the life of Paul really becomes a strong apologetic for us. That even as Pastor Sean was preaching last week, as we looked at the church in Jerusalem, the church is scattered. And what the means by which God is using to scatter the church is persecution. And even there, we look at the apostle Paul, who, who becomes the apostle Paul, this man Saul, Saul of Tarsus, is almost the spearhead of that persecution. He's the one who's present whenever they stone the first, one of the first deacons, a deacon by the name of Stephen. They stone him to death. Paul is very the one who's going from house to house, dragging men and women out, busting up community groups. Think about that. We look at the beautiful picture in Acts chapter two. We preached it a couple of weeks ago at the end, verses 42 through 47 of churches meeting together in homes. And then all of a sudden, the part that's not included in there is you have a man like Saul of Tarsus and his team busting, kicking up the doors and busting up those community groups and dragging people off and putting them in prison and stoning them and persecuting him. Not only does Paul hate or Saul hate Jesus, but he also hates Gentiles in general, stands in oppositions from that. And you go from a man who, who vehement, vehemently hates the church, trying to stamp it out, breathing out accusations and, and all of these things and persecutions against the church. You go from that to a man who will endure beatings and endure persecutions for the sake of the church. And you ask yourselves, what changed? What happened? What moves a man to be so zealous for one thing and then all of a sudden a change where he's completely the opposite, flipped 180, where he's zealous now for a new thing, for a different thing. In philosophy, uh, in logic and reason, they have this thing, it's called Occam's razor. I think possibly it's even used in law. What Occam's razor states is oftentimes the simplest explanation is the most likely and most probable of explanations. And when you think about the life of Paul, the simplest explanation is the most likely explanation. And that explanation is what exactly what he says four times in the Bible. 
that on the road to Damascus where he was going to get more letters in order to persecute the, persecute the church even stronger, on his way, he saw and he heard a post-resurrected, ascended, now coming back down, descended Christ Jesus who appeared to him, who spoke to him, who said, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? And it called Saul into ministry. The very thing that he says, he says, I was so moved and struck by this. It struck me blind. I could not eat. I could not drink because I was so terrified for three days. And then all of a sudden, a brother by the name of Ananias came to me, a Christian man. Like, could you imagine being Ananias? Like, I think of all the, the listings of callings in life. It'd be like, man, that'd be a tough one. When, when the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, hey, there's this guy that I want you to go lay hands on. His name, possibly you've heard of him, is Saul of Tarsus. He's become a Christian. I've converted him. I'm gonna use him. You'd be like, Jesus, are you sure about that one? But Ananias goes and he prays for Saul and he lays hands on Saul. And Saul says that it was as if the scales fell from my eyes and my eyes were open. What they were open to, they were open to the beauty and the power of Jesus and the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. And then Paul is, not only is he saved and filled with the spirit, but he's baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul has, and God, but God has appointed and anointed and used and called Paul to a specific task. And that task would fall within the calling of the apostles in general. And I wanna lay some groundwork for that in this series and in, the, and in this sermon. But even when we think about Paul's unique calling, it's this, it's a calling in the laying of the foundation of the church. That's really what's happening here is, God is using the Apostle Paul and calling him to lay the foundation of the church. That the apostles, they will lay the foundation of the church by receiving and declaring three things. First, the doctrine for the church. Second is the structure for the church. And lastly, the unity of the church. So they're, they're receiving this from Jesus and now they're declaring this and preaching this and writing this, three things, the doctrine, the structure, and the unity, all for the glory and the sake of the church to which we are a part of. Now, let me just state the obvious. Anytime when you focus in on a man, you can elevate that man to too much and we don't wanna do that with the apostle Paul. We wanna remind ourselves that Jesus is, as Paul states, Jesus is the cornerstone of the whole church. You remove the cornerstone, the whole thing collapses in on itself, that Jesus is the reason and Jesus is the power and Jesus is the true centerpiece of a church and of the church universal. That a church that neglects or forgets or ignores or somehow bypasses Jesus, that isn't a church. It may be an organization. It may be good at, at motive, uh, moralistic motivation. It might be uh, good at therapeutic behavior deism, but it is no genuine true church. That in every sermon that I preach and every sermon that I write, I have the words of Spurgeon in behind my ear, whispering to me as if it were, where Spurgeon said, no Christ in your sermons, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And I, rem I remind myself even of that in this, that in no way do we want to elevate Paul because it wasn't that God needed Paul, it's that God 
chose to use Paul as a demonstration of his grace. That the apostle Paul, uh, four or five, four times in scriptures, he will rehearse uh, his own personal testimony. And each time he does it, he does it to say that I am the picture of God's grace being extended. I am the supreme example of God's grace. That when we think about the apostle Paul, what it reminds us of is that there is no one who is beyond God's salvation. There is no one that Jesus can't save. And that's good news for us, right? Because some of us maybe have felt that about ourselves or maybe we feel that about ourselves or some of us have family members and friends who have renounced faith, refused to believe. Some of you shared the gospel with a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a neighbor tens of times, maybe even more than that. And yet they seem like they reject it and they seem like they turn away from it. They seem like they didn't want no part of this. And this gives us great hope that Jesus is stronger than man's will. That Jesus is stronger and those to whom he's, he's predestined to save, he will save, he will bring about salvation in their hearts. And we see that even in the apostle Paul. It is Jesus who is using these apostles in order to lay the foundation of the church. We see that starting in verses, uh, verse number two and 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, he writes, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I love that picture. Some of you know that um, we've already kind of announced it, that uh, the Lord willing, we're gonna preach in 1 Timothy uh, next year, starting in January, we're gonna kick off. And we're gonna be about 18 weeks in the, in the book of 1 Timothy. I'm excited to get back to uh, real expositional preaching, the meat and potatoes of what we do, going verse by verse, book by book, and just really focusing in. I, I, I missed that in 2020, but we're gonna, you know, maybe that's what's wrong with 2020. We've deviated from what we've done. I don't know. But nevertheless, uh, this is a little harder and that's a little easier. And I enjoy that. And I think it's great that we will do that. And even in 1 Timothy, Paul calls the church the household of God. It's a reminder, again, that what the church is, that we're a family. That's what we are, not just an organization, but we are a family together. He says we are the household of God. And how are we built? We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The apostles are the foundation because they receive and they declare the revelation of God's word, which is sound doctrine. That in the Old Testament, when we saw that God had appointed and used three different offices for the leadership of his people, that's the offices of a prophet, the office of a priest, and the office of king. After Jesus' ascension, Jesus is perfectly the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And what we see in Christ, as we even think about what Christ is doing right now, is he's fulfilling the role. He is the eternal prophet, priest, and king for his people. And after Christ ascends and he sends the Spirit and the Spirit descends, now what we have is we have a new office, and that is the office of the apostle. The office of the apostle will only be open for about 40 years. That once the Bible will be completed and written, that office disappears because the apostles disappear. That what we see after Judas, the apostles are never replaced. In fact, towards the end 
of the, the writings of the Scripture chronologically, what we see is the apostles no longer even take on for themselves the title of apostles, but they begin to call themselves elder. The last apostle left alive is, is John, not John the Baptist, but John the Revelator, the one who writes the Gospel of John, first and second and third John, and the book of Revelation. He's the last apostle left alive, but by the time Revelation comes around, he no longer is referring to himself as an apostle, but he's referring to himself as an elder. Now listen, elders aren't apostles, I didn't receive a new revelation. This isn't inspired in the same way that what Paul writes is inspired. Elders aren't apostles, but the apostles were elders. John MacArthur writes, and he says, the church was established. It was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And once that foundation was laid, the work of the apostles and prophets was finished. The work of interpreting and proclaiming the now written word was taken over by evangelists and pastors and teachers. See Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. The purpose of the apostles was to equip the church with right doctrine. The purpose of the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers is to equip the church for holy living and effective ministry built upon that right doctrine. We see this even in chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And what Paul's saying is there's this stewardship of grace coming in in the revelation and the understanding of what God's doing in the church. I'm a steward of this. It's being revealed. It's coming as grace. And now my job is to give it to you for you. What is that grace? What's how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. Now, again, Paul writes the most. We got 13 inspired letters from Paul, and yet he would say, I've written briefly. I mean, have you tried to read the book of Romans lately, right? Very theologically dense, and yet he would say, I've written briefly on these things even. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to sons of men and other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, what is this mystery that he's talking about? Namely, what he's talking about is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body. They're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We'll get to that. But what Paul's saying is the message of the gospel is nothing new. The fullness and the application even of the message of the gospel is nothing new, that the Gentiles would be included, that the Gentiles would be engrafted into the family of God, that God is so gracious that he's going to save both Jew and Gentile and make us one, one new humanity in Christ. He says, this was a mystery in the Old Testament, but now the mystery has been revealed and it's being revealed to him and the apostles that what we see as we think about even the storyline of the Bible, and we said this, I think maybe in week one, but it bears to say again that in the Old Testament, what we see is we see Jesus anticipated. In the gospels that follow the Old Testament writings, we see in the gospels that Jesus is made manifest, that Jesus is manifested. In the book of Acts, Jesus is proclaimed. In the epistles to which Paul is writing, portions of the epistles. What we see in, happening in the epistles is Jesus is explained. 
And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is revealed. Finally, we see him as he is. Not only is Paul receiving sound doctrine for the church, but the apostles, including Paul, that they are laying the foundation as they receive and declare the plan and the structure for the church. Paul is writing in his letters to instruct pastors and elders and members in a church, how a church is to be established and how a church is to be governed and how a church is to be led and how a church is to be func- and how a church is to function. The church is made up of elders and deacons and members, and members can be mature members and immature members, weak members and strong members, but the regenerate members of the church all coming together, and even the elders and the deacons are still members of that church, but we're all coming together. We're working in love and harmony to the glory of Jesus, that our job as the church is to simply preach to the unconverted, to mature the converted, to see to it that the hurting are cared for, the outcasts are included, that orphans are adopted, that widows are provided for, that missionaries and evangelists are sent and supported. And meanwhile, we all are keeping ourselves unstained from the world. That is what we are to do in the church. And the Apostle Paul is giving that to us. He's enabling us to do that. I've also said as part of, a, of the Storyline series, I've kind of had a, a couple of purposes in it. One of the purposes for you to understand kind of chronologically the storyline of the Bible. But the other thing that I want you to understand is I want you to understand how your Bible is put together. So if you will, just, uh, just, just in a moment, take out your Bibles. And I know now they're, they're way, way, way in front of you, right? Down below. But if you could take out one of those pew Bibles, if you don't have a pew Bible, and turn with me for just a second. And let's look at the table of contents of the Bible. And we're just going to hit how the New Testament is structured. And maybe for some of you, you're already going to know this, but some of you may go, hey, you know what? That's new information. I didn't see that before, but you'll understand how your Bible's put together. So what I've said is like, when we talk about the book of Daniel, I want you to know because of what we've done in 2020, I want you to say, hey, Daniel, that's a, that's during the exile. That's why he's writing. That's who Nebuchadnezzar is. That's why he's been asked to bow down. I want you to understand those things And I also want you to understand how the New Testament is put together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they make up the gospels. They're the gospel of counts. Like I said, it's in those that we see Jesus being manifested, living among us. The book of Acts is written by Luke, the same person that wrote the gospel of Luke. And uh, what Acts is telling us, it's the history of the church and how the church began and how the apostles came to be and what their jobs were, even in that, in a historical form. And then starting at the book of Romans and going all the way over to Revelation, we have what's called the epistles. And starting at the book of Romans and going all the way over to the book of Philemon, those are the 13 epistles that the apostle Paul will write. Now, they're not put together in chronological order. They're actually put together from the, um, from the longest letter to the shortest letter. So each one of them kind of descend in, in size, right? They're also, they are also put together as letters to churches. So that would be the book of Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. Those are all churches that Paul's writing letters to. The next set would be letters to people. You have what's called the pastoral epistles. Timothy and Titus are pastors. He's writing to them. Then lastly, you have the book of Philemon. 
And then you have the rest of the epistles. And then lastly, what you have is you have the, um, the book of Revelation given there. The apostles are the foundation of the church because they receive and they declare the gospel to the Gentiles. And I really want to finish up here and then we'll end with a, just a few words of application. That not only is Paul's life an apologetic, but the whole establishment of the church is an apologetic. I mean, that's what Jesus said whenever he said, in the way that you love me, in the way that you love each other, like they're gonna know that you're my, you're my disciples, that we as disciples, we're marked by a love for Jesus and a love for one another. And for us, I think some of that picture is kind of lost on us because we really don't understand the idea of Jew versus Gentile. But I would say that most of us here, our descendants are Gentile descendants, but even at that, it's kind of lost. Even in the terminology of Gentile, it's something that's very broad. But since we've been in the storyline of the Bible, and it was just a few short months ago that we were in kind of the, uh, we were in the books of Deuteronomy, the books of Joshua, we can say this, that although Gentile is very broad, but when we talk about Gentiles, we're talking about the descendants of the of the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Moabites, the Philistines, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Samaritans, the Greeks, and the Romans. Those are the Gentiles. I draw attention to that list because those are the very enemies of God. Those are the very enemies of the people of God. Those are the very people that when Joshua takes the people into the promised land and they're told to, to you got to kick these people out, you got to move them, they do it by warfare. Those are the list of people that would be considered now the Gentiles. These are the people that have conquered the Israelites, that have oppressed the Israelites, that have enslaved the Israelites. And now what the apostle Paul is preaching and declaring that because of Jesus, what Jesus have, has done, that now these people, they are included into the family of God and into the household of God. That they are now one, that you are now united to them. Look at what Paul says in um, chapter two verse, two, verse 12. Remember that you, he's writing to the Gentiles, remember that you were, at that time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were hopeless is what he said. You didn't have hope. There was no hope for you um, to know God in this world. But then look at verse 18 at the change because of what Christ has done. For through him, we both now have access to the Father we all, I'm sorry, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. But the unity of the church for the Apostle Paul, I think that's the key, that's the key application point that he makes. And I think it just bears, I, I feel like I've probably used this as key application for us in our church a couple different times um, over the last couple of months. And it's just because I think that our, our, our unity is in jeopardy as a church. Not just as a church universal, but as a church particular. And I think because of the 2020 and the coin flip of what way we could land and what we can do and the decisions made and the opinions out there and just all that noise out there, it 
bleeds over into here. And last Monday night as the elders, or last Tuesday night as the elders met for our elders meeting, we're deeply concerned about the unity of the church. And so we go back to proclaiming who we are in Christ, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that there is a bond of love and a bond of peace that unites us, that's stronger than political affiliation, that's stronger than our opinions about COVID-19 or, of co- or about masks or about any other thing, that what unites us together is what Christ has done. And if Christ can unite a Jew and a Gentile, how much more can he unite a Democrat and a Republican? How much more can he, can he unite someone who is very loosey-goosey about COVID-19 and someone who's very strict and tight about COVID-19? How much more can he do that? Because that is the truth. In fact, as I said, it is key in application for the Apostle Paul. Like when Paul writes the book of Romans and we understand the book of Romans as maybe the greatest theological treatise in the Bible. And when Paul gets to the first 11 chapters, he's laying this groundwork of, of theology of what Christ has done and who, who we are as the church. And then he gets into the application portions. It starts in Romans chapter 12. And so he's really firing off application after application all the way to the end of the book. But whenever he gets to about, I think it's about middle ways into chapter uh 13 and crossing over into 14, he talks about the unity of the church and he gives more real estate to the unity of the church in application and response to the gospel than any other issue in the entire book of Romans. 36 verses he gives to the unity of the church. In fact, I think we could say that the apostle Paul is put to death, not just because he preached and believed Jesus. I think they would have tolerated that But what Paul did, the reason why he's put to death is because he is fighting for the unity of the church. We're gonna look at this even all the way back into Acts, the 21st chapter. The Jews have Paul thrown out of the temple and they have him arrested in Jerusalem. Not for preaching Jesus, because there's a, now there's, there's a rumor spreading that Paul brought a Gentile into the, into the very temple grounds that Paul has crossed over. He brought a Gentile past the, past the courts of Gentiles. Gentiles could come into the kind of the inward, uh, in, inward uh, wall, but then they had to stop. But what they say is, no, Paul brought, uh, the name of the Gentile is Trophimus from, from, Ephes, from Ephesus. He's an Ephesian. And what they say is, Paul, you brought this guy all the way in. We saw him there. And what Paul says is, no, 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 no. I, di- I didn't. I didn't, bring, I didn't bring a Gentile into the temple. No, 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 you misunderstood me. What I said was that Gentile is the temple of God. And they said, look, there's some things we can take, but that's one thing that we cannot take. And they begin the wheels in motion that finally ends up with what history tells us of is Paul being beheaded. It's what he's writing here in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes these words and his Jews hear this. Some Jews are gonna say, oh no, he didn't. These are our very enemies. It is what Paul says here. There is a dividing wall of hostility. Namely, it is the ceremonial laws. I mean, think about this. Not only did the Jews and Gentiles not worship the same God, they didn't eat the same foods. They didn't wear the same clothes. They didn't uh, observe the same holidays. They didn't even observe the same type of week. There is a hostility between them. And what Paul proclaims is that hostility has been destroyed. It's been laid down because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
that the church, we are the most beautiful thing in this world. We are the chosen instrument through which we are putting the manifold wisdom of God together on display to the world, how God can take separate people and call them together and die for them and fill them and baptize them with the spirit and set them on fire for a love and a passion and a zeal for himself and for one another. What Paul says is not only are we preaching and proclaiming this to the world, but this has cosmic implications in it. The way that you and I live our lives and love one another and serve one another, it's preaching a message, not just to a lost and dying world, but it's preaching a message to the very heavenly powers and heavenly places. That's what he says. So let me leave us with this three points of application for us as the Point Community Church. The first application is this, that Christ has come and he's preached to those who are far off. Respond to him. I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll probably say it 15 times when we get into 1 Timothy. The apostle Paul met the resurrected Christ that day on the the road to Damascus. And despite all of his theological knowledge, despite all of the revelations that God has used in his life, I mean, he sees things and does things so great that the Lord has to send a a, a thorn into his flesh in order to humble him because of the great revelations that he saw. Right, 13 books of the New Testament, gets the bejeebus beat out of him, is imprisoned, is shipwrecked, all of these things, and yet all of those things in his life, and he never, ever got over the magnificent grace of Jesus as it was displayed to him in his salvation. He never got nose blind to that. He never got numb to that beautiful, glorious truth that Jesus has saved me and Jesus has come to me. May we too, may we never get over that. And let me say to those of you who have yet to respond to Jesus's invitation, what we see here is that it is Christ who has come, he says, and preached to those who are far off. This is the effectual call of Jesus by the Spirit. It is Christ who gives the invitation. We give an invitation here at the Point Community Church because Christ has given an invitation. And what I say to you is, listen, don't confuse Christianity with moralistic living. Don't confuse Christianity and what Jesus has done with you trying to be a better person, you laying old habits down, you trying new moral habits. Don't try, don't confuse Christianity with you trying to be a more religious person. That Jesus didn't come to make okay people good people. Christ has come to make dead people alive. Christ has come to forgive sinners like me and you and to upend our worship by giving us something better and more magnificent to worship, namely himself. And you respond to Jesus with faith and with repentance and with submission. Just like the apostle Paul, you take a knee before Jesus. You stand in awe of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never done that. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you made a profession of faith. Maybe there's something else, but you've never submitted and surrendered your heart, your life, your will, your desires, your worship to Jesus. And that's what Christianity is. We say this often that heaven isn't gonna be filled with good people. It's gonna be filled with people that love Jesus. That's who's heaven's for. Do you love Christ? And from that love for Christ, do you long to serve Christ and to make him known? 
First, respond to Jesus. Number two, Christ has inspired and given us his word, so we are to cherish it. It is for the believer, it is our life. It is sweeter than honey on our lips. It's better than a honeycomb that we can eat. That Jesus tells his disciples to abide in him and he will abide in us. And his word is the means by which we receive sustenance and life. It is the way in which he sustains us. He has inspired it, revealed it, given it, superintended over it watched over it painstakingly so that you and I can have it today, so that you and I can read it today? Are you centering yourself around Jesus and his word? We are his disciples as we abide in him. We abide in him as we abide in his word. Center yourself, center your soul, center your everything on that. And number three, Christ has brought peace and unity to his church. And we fight to preserve it. That God was so concerned about the unity of his church that he planned it before the world began. That the Old Testament, it drips with words and messages and language of inclusion. That Jesus was so concerned about the unity that he prays in agony about it in the garden. Paul was so concerned about the unity of the church that he became a prisoner and ultimately persecuted over it. Preachers and teachers and Christians throughout the centuries have been so concerned about the unity of the church that they preach and they pray for it. And we as elders and preachers and teachers, we're preaching and we're praying and we're concerned about it. Let me just ask you if you've lost the sense of responsibility to love one another, to minister to each other, to care for each other, to in humility and in deference to look up to each other, to esteem others better than yourselves, to have the same love for one another. If you've lost that, then please pray that the Lord would give it to you again. Please ask the Lord to produce the fruit of the Spirit that enables us to be patient and loving and kind and gentle with one another. We must understand that if our love for one another is ever lost, the whole beauty and the glory of this thing that we've got here is gone. It disappears. What makes us a healthy church is we rightly believe who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and we allow that to transform the way that we live, not just in a holiness of living, but in a loving living. As we love one another, we show great patience with one another and great kindness to one another. The unity of the church, it rests upon our shoulders. So let me say to you that wherever there's bitterness, would you get rid of it? If you're joining and watching us from the live stream, search out your heart. Wherever there is bitterness, would you get rid of it? Wherever there's animosity, would you lay that down? Wherever there's an attitude of prejudice or racism or self-righteousness or jealousy or rivalry, dissension, division, strife, wherever any of that junk is, it's from the flesh. And would you lay it down? Would you put it to death? Would you get rid of it? Whenever there's an opportunity of gossip, would you not do it? Would you not do it? Wherever there's an opportunity, though, for you to love and to show humility, to minister to the needs of another brother or sister in Jesus Christ, would you do it? Wherever you can go low to build another up, would you do that? 
May we bind this thing together in genuine love so that we can honor the Father and the Son and the Spirit who desire so much for us to be one, so that we can honor the dear apostle who gave his life to preach these truths to us. Let us pray. Jesus, preserve our unity. Preserve the bond of peace that we share and that we have. May our love for one another, may it be genuine. May we abhor what is evil. May we hold fast to what is good. May we love one another with a brotherly affection. May we be people who outdo one another in showing honor. May we not be slothful in zeal, but may we be fervent in spirit. May we serve you. May we rejoice in hope. May we be patient in tribulation. May we be constant in prayer. May we be generous. May we be quick to contribute to the needs of the saint and to seek to show hospitality. May we bless those who persecute us. May we bless them and not, re- and not curse them. May we rejoice with those who rejoice. May we weep with those who weep. May we live in harmony with one another. May we not be haughty, but may we associate with the lowly. May we never be wise in our own sight. May we not repay no evil for evil done to us. May we give thought to do what is honorable inside of all. As it's possible for us, may we live peaceably with everyone, especially our brothers and sisters in you. May we never avenge ourselves, but may we leave it to the wrath of God. We are reminded that vengeance is yours and you will repay, that you see all and you do all, but may we be the type of people so countercultural to this world that if we see our enemy is hungry, may we feed him. If we see that he is thirsty, may we give him something to drink. By doing so, may we be a blessing to them. May we in this time not be overcome by evil, but may we overcome evil with good. For your sake, we pray this and ask this. Amen.